Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, podditors. Welcome back to what is technically season nine of adulting, but I only took a week off in between. You might notice it wasn't episode last week. It's because it was the end of the season. But because we're in lockdown and because the world's a bit topsy-turvy, I thought I'd try and get back as quickly as I can um, and start back with the new season, which is where we're at today. And there has been a change in format. So this season, I'm simply asking my guests, what three things do they wish they were taught in school? They're going to send them over to me prior to the interview, and then we're going to discuss them. And the reason for this was I thought it might allow for a bit more silliness and seriousness within one episode. And also it gives the guest a bit more power as to what we talk about and how we talk about it, etc. So I think it's going to be a really nice, fun change up, and I hope you enjoy it. The first episode is with Maxine Williams. Maxine has just turned 18 years old. She's still in school. And the reason I invited her on is because she slid into my DMs in response to my episode with Hayley Narman and Choice Feminism. And we ended up having a really interesting conversation. And as we'll hear in the podcast, we some of our discussion made me decide that actually I'd love to speak to her on the podcast. And I'm so glad that I did. It's a really interesting, informative conversation. I think that all too often we make assumptions about Gen Z and about the way things have changed. Um, and we're not necessarily actually that clued up on how everything is for people of that generation and what it's really like in school. So I love this episode and I hope that you do too. As always, please do rate, review and subscribe. Bye. Hello and welcome to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Maxine Williams. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We just spoke briefly before we both got a bit of a headache, but we'll power on through. Um, I'm really excited to be talking to you. But for people who don't know who you are, I know you're nervous about this question. Can you tell us about Maxine and what it is that you're doing at the minute in your life? Um, so I'm currently in sick form in my last year, so I'm in year 13, um, just turned 18 um, and I'm studying A-levels at the moment and I'm applying to university for PPE, so that's like what I want to sort of go into in the future. I've recently become like self-proclaimed activist um, on social media, so that's what I'm sort of doing at the moment and so yeah. So you're here on my podcast, the first episode of this new season, because you DM me about another episode that I'd done and we ended up chatting. And I thought you were very interesting, you're really clever. And you said something to me like, I just feel like I'm never going to be heard, um, especially because you're a black woman and so much of mainstream media and conversation is dominated by voices like mine. So I said, why don't you come on the podcast? Mm -hmm. And it's perfect because this season I'm asking everyone what's three things that you wished that you've been taught in school and you literally are still in school. You're my youngest guest I've ever had on, I think, fairly certain. Oh, I feel um, honoured. <laughs> I was about to say, I feel it's such an honour to be chatting to you and it's exciting because I think that we don't always have these conversations between generations and, and I'm interested to hear what it's like. I kind of hypothesise about what I think school is like, but I don't actually know anymore because I left school nine, eight, nine years ago. Um, but anyway, so your first thing, I asked you three things that you wish you'd been taught in school. And the first thing that you said was that you, in your girls' school, were taught how to put a condom on the penis, on a penis, but boys weren't taught this. And so when the guys that you knew from that school um, first had the like sexual experiences, they didn't use know how to use condoms. And also you said it reduces sex to just penetration. And that's something that sticks with young girls. We weren't taught about sex for people who weren't heterosexual. And we didn't learn about conditions like vaginismus and vulvodynia. I don't even know what vulvodynia is. Am I saying it right? So I only, yeah, so I only learned about vulvodynia and vaginismus actually through um another podcast called Fox Given. Um mm. I don't know if you know that one. Um 
and there was a guest on there and she was talking about her experiences of vulvodynia and how like it's basically like a burning sensation so she can have penetration I'm not really sure too much about it but it was very interesting because I was learning these things through a podcast but I should have been learning these things at school considering I'm still at school mm. and like we've never had those conversations at all and when you asked me the question like when you asked me you know three things I'd learned at school or I hadn't learned school I really had to think I was like oh my gosh I've forgotten my like 7 to 11 experience mm. but I thought that's something that stuck out to me because in a girls school especially it reduces us to ultimately serving men because we're learning this well, I guess for our own protection, of course, but why wasn't the conversation about, you know, female pleasure or, you know, more than just, you know, how to put a condom on a penis? Yeah, I mean, I had the exact same experience, which is tragic when you think about like how long ago I left school and the same, me and my girlfriends all mm. had the same conversation about how when we were younger, we genuinely didn't know that sex was for our pleasure. But it took us years, like in our 20s, to, to really kind of like get to grips with this idea that, you know, sex was more about pleasing a man um, and it could be like a myriad of different experiences. What at what age did you realize there was something missing in your education around sex, or was it like were you like wait is this all we're going to learn, or when did you kind of click that you know there was something missing in that education? Probably when I was like fifteen or sixteen, and I like first started dating. Obviously, it sounds really tragic now, <laughs> but I think with those experiences, you sort of without realize internalize that in sort of like intimacy you are just for the like you are just serving men and mm. I think especially going to like a school that I have gone to a lot of the girls there are very you know articulate and we can talk about these sort of things I think it clicked in my mind when other girls were like shit no this isn't right or why did we learn this and I think especially a lot of my friends who were like coming out and you know, we're saying their experiences and how they had to navigate, you know, relationships that weren't heterosexual, sexual experiences that weren't, you know, just man and woman, and how they'd been completely left out of our sex ed, which is quite dangerous mm. because it is it's obviously it's like, you know, it's important that we all learn about our own pleasure. But I think it's quite dangerous because it's sort of, if I was in those, if I was like, oh, I'm gay, and I was in those lessons, I would sort of sit there and think, I'm I'm not important, or I'm not valid, or my relationship isn't valid. It's really impressive to be one, the deafness with which you speak about sex, because you seem like a very sex positive, you're quite um, frank talking about it. And I don't think I would have had the language or even the like ability to talk about sex in the way that you are. I had so much shame around sex growing up. Mm. So what's interesting is you seem so clued up. And yet you've had the same education as me in many ways in terms of what you were learning about in school. So would you say that lots of these things that you're learning um, and this quite deep understanding of of pleasure and sexuality and why it's so important that we don't kind of hide away any parts of those. Would you say you've learned that through things like podcasts and social media then? Or or where are you getting this information? Yeah, definitely podcasts and social media, because if it wasn't for that and if it wasn't for me listening to, I think, older women talking about their experiences, I would have never Christian mine. So I would have just gone through the exact same journey as everybody else and then got to like my mid-twenties and being like, shit, actually, no, that's wrong. Or I, you know, that what I learned in school wasn't everything to do with sex. I think as well, I've had, which is quite obviously quite sad, but I've had like sexual trauma. And so mm. I think in order to protect myself, I have to sort of stay clued up because to sort of prevent such things happening again. That's really devastating. And it's that classic thing of us, especially as women and people who are more vulnerable to those kind of incidents where we kind of have to, it shouldn't really be us doing the work to make ourselves feel more safe. It should be that, you know, mm. in reverse, it's kind of that classic idea of like, we should stop worrying about women getting 
sexually abused and worry about men teaching them how to not be sexual abusers. Um, But how did those conversations go then? So now that you and your, it sounds like you and your friends um, are really interested in making sure that you understand the nuances and the complications of sex and sexuality. Do you discuss it with those boys that you mentioned in that initial message who you said seem to have absolutely no clue um, when it came to Mm. sex? I think the thing is, it's like you've, we, when we spoke before, you brought this up and saying how a lot of millennials think that school has changed so much or like the younger generation are so much more like clued up or know what's going on and are really engaged. And I don't think all of the time, like, I don't think that's the case a lot of the time. So even with my experiences of like sex within sick form and just in terms of like relationships, all of that sort of stuff, a lot, there was still, you know, your classic like girls don't talk about this sort of thing until like one person brings it up and then everybody else starts, you know, like everyone brings it up. So it's, it's quite hard because even though I, like you, you've said that I appear to be someone who's, who is engaged with these conversations, it can be still quite, it can be hard navigating that within sort of a school environment because not everyone is at that level. And in terms of the boys, I don't, I don't know because as much as I say that I think it's about finding like-minded people so there's some people in school who are very similar to me and so we'll have these conversations but then I'll have other friends that I like wouldn't have this these sort of conversations with so it's quite hard to know what boys my age or yeah what they're thinking or (laughs) what they're experiencing or their knowledge and stuff do you find it frustrating when people like me and so many other people say, oh my God, Gen Z, are you Gen Z? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When people kind of make claims that, you know, like, oh my God, you're all so much more um, clued up and, you know, the education is so much better. Does it kind of make you feel like you're a bit bereft or someone has kind of taken a bit of your youth away because we almost put so much, um, not necessarily responsibility on your shoulders, but we assume that you're kind of like miles ahead of us even if you might be does that take something away from you in a weird way yeah I think especially recently with my work on like Instagram a lot of people have this expectation that I'm meant to know everything or you know I'm meant to handle situations in the best way but I'm I've just turned 18 you know I'm still obviously I'm an adult under the law now but I'm still a child essentially so I'm still in school I have only known like my local area I haven't I haven't seen like the rest of the world so I think there is this big huge responsibility that our generation have but I think it's interesting because when I was growing up so I was born in 2002 so when I was growing up I thought that I was a millennial and so many of my friends did but then it got to the point that like your your generation like there was this whole idea that millennials were, you know, the ones that were going to change the world. And mm. I mean, some of them are, but it was like this whole thing. And I was talking to one of my friends and she said, yeah, millennials said they were going to change the world, but they're all in office jobs now and the world is still the same. And I was like, yeah, that's very true. So I think that distinction in my head means like, I know that I'm not a millennial and I'm a Gen Z because we, I think especially with social media, like we had, I had social media from the age of 12. 13 um so we had all this information thrown at us constantly so we've de- we've developed a lot differently than you necessarily would have yeah it, do you know what else is really is such a shit thing but so when I was I think I was 21 I was on holiday with my sister and her boyfriend at the time and I remember being really passionate about something and we were out for dinner and he said something like you won't be this passionate forever like you'll get older and you'll start to like calm down a bit when life gets a bit easier and I remember being so angry about this but there is something about and I don't think we should ever lose that spark but when you're in your like teenagers in your early 20s that life is a lot harder like you don't have the stability and like you're figuring things out and you really have so much more I think more like passion and empathy for like things going on whereas something starts Mm. to happen I hate that it happens but as you get older you suddenly have like other responsibilities and like you might end up getting an office job and like I think that's also another thing that was probably when you were growing up I think that each generation definitely has their moment of action where they're kind of like we're going to do something and then a lot of people it's like how people 
through the course of their life tend to end up being more conservative in their like voting which is mm. tragic it's shit as well but that's like an interesting <laughs> juxtaposition that you were like oh my god we thought the millennials were gonna do it and now they're all just also we're old now the millennials like people are in their like mid- yeah mid- 30s. 30s yeah yeah which is really so, weird to think about it is weird to think about but what do you because what I found really interesting was when we first spoke and we were DMing and you were like, I really want to be an activist. And like, you really, you really want your life to have a lot of purpose when it comes to, um, rather than just enjoying yourself, you really feel a deep seated root sense that you've got to, you know, make some kind of impact. And I think that's another Mm. like generational, another like sweeping brush that we all kind of generalize your generation as. Um, but do you think that is kind of true amongst you and your friends that do you think there's also a kind of burden because of this expectation of you all being so knowledgeable that you also desperately all want to be kind of game changers and the next Greta Thunberg and is that something that's leveled at you Mm, it's interesting because I sort of experience it where like I said recently I've been trying to find like-minded people because it's hard because I feel like the space I'm in and like you said the way that I speak and the way that I tick articulate myself although like I don't know everything of course I'm just 18 I I sort of relate a lot more to older people whereas people my age don't it's it's hard I, I think in all honesty not everyone cares and that's fair enough. Um, and I think that is fair because people look at the world and a lot of my friends will look at the world and be like, I can't actually change anything. So I'm just going to live the life that I want to live. But I I sort of accidentally fell into it because I, I made a post the other day and I said, why am I fighting for my existence? And it, it was me coming to the realisation that the reason now that I call myself an activist is because when the whole thing with Black Lives Matter happened in about May, June time, and I first made a post and considering I don't have a lot of followers on Instagram, I got, it got like 4,000 views. And for me, it was like really big. I, I realized that I was speaking about these things, not because I thought, oh, this will look good for me or, you know, this is a nice career is because I want my future to be better. I want to be, I want to be able to enjoy life and not have my race hinder that. So I think that's why I'm personally so passionate about that and my gender as well. Do you think that on the one hand, I kind of feel envious that you're so knowledgeable at such a young age, because I feel like in some senses it does, it can like protect you but on the other hand, I feel mm. like it's such a big thing to be exposed to. And obviously, depending on your layers of privilege, you will know some of the huge injustices of the world because you're already marginalized mm. because of your gender or because of your race or because of your sexuality, whatever it might be. But do you do you ever wish that you hadn't grown up with social media? Or do you you're so accustomed to it that you you kind of do you ha- how do you feel about it or are you sort of indifferent? I sort of feel like recently I've been feeling Sometimes when I get down, or especially when it comes to Instagram, I'll be like, I wished I didn't think the way I did, because it. I go into situations where I'll be like, yeah, if I did this, it will make me feel like better in the moment. But I know that it's actually a bad thing to do, because I'm so self-aware and because I'm so critical. But sometimes I wish that I wasn't, and I was able to like be a child. So sometimes I like, it's hard because in the space that I'm in, I'm expected to have, I I have all this responsibility put onto me, but when I want to be a child, or a perfect example of this was, um, you know, the like um, sculptures, like the little pottery naked ladies I've been doing, Um, (laughs) I put all of them on my Snapchat story um, and someone swiped up for my story and said, different body types, question mark, question mark, question mark. And I was like, it's my A-level coursework, leave me alone. And the reason I was doing that, because it, it, because I wanted to create bodies that just, you know, weren't typical, like skinny white ladies. Um, and so that's what I said to the person. I said, it's my A-level coursework. Like, I don't have to be an activist in every sort of, you know, or have to be 
you know, politically correct in every aspect of my life. This is for my A-level work. Like, just leave me alone. But it's so interesting because if it was anybody else, that wouldn't have been said. But because it's me and it's because it's like, oh, Maxine thinks that she knows everything and, oh, she's calling people out and she's talking about racism and feminism and all of this sort of stuff, then she must be like that all the time. It, it can be quite exhausting because I just wanted to show people that, like, I'm really enjoying making these, like, the naked ladies. <laughs> I loved your naked ladies. As you know, I replied to you and I was like, oh, my God, I want to buy one, which is probably also me um, taking away your childhood a bit as well because I'm trying to turn your fun into a business. Um, but that's something really weird that happens, and I think it happens more because social media is so flattening as well. I do think social media is part of this, that when you stick your head above the parapet and start talking about things, people do hold you to a much higher um, a much higher account than they would someone else who perhaps has never, ever spoken up about those things. And that's mm. really frustrating because I think sometimes that can really halt people and stop them in their tracks and actually stop them from wanting to talk or stop them from wanting to you know fight about something because it's just you kind of feel like as you said you're constantly being told that you have to be active in your activism which is unsustainable and not possible for anyone to be doing you know at every moment of Mm. every day um but I find it interesting so you you don't I just want to know like would you do you ever wish you know that social media didn't exist because I think that all the time and I think that's some, such a millennial thing we all kind of love it and hate it and some days I'm like oh, it's the most amazing thing in the world and other days I just dream about everything breaking down is that something you feel as well or do you think because you grew up with it so much younger it's almost a different entity to you I feel like sometimes I wish that the way it, that certain platforms have you know what they've turned into I I sort of hate that aspect but I think because I've grown up with it I I, to some extent love it I love that everything is I think in our sort of like generations we've got so used to things being so accessible that Mm. when things aren't you know easily accessible readily available we can get quite frustrated. So my dad will sometimes be like, oh, you just need to be patient. I'm like, but I've got things to do. But realistically, I don't have, it's not like I don't have things to do, but I can be patient and I can wait. But because I'm so used to things, literally, if I've got a question, I'll just Google it and I'll get an answer within seconds. But when Mm -hmm. we have to stop, I think that can be quite, and like slow down, I think that can be quite frustrating. But I don't know if I would say that, you know, I wish it didn't exist. I think it has made, it's hard. There are things that wouldn't have happened because of social media. Like everything that happened over the summer with Black Lives Matter wouldn't have happened if it wasn't Mm -hmm. for social media. Um, Because people would only get their news from news, you know, channels, newspapers. And as we know, they are biased and not not obviously not all the time but ultimately the people at the top are always gonna be you know white upper class middle class people controlling these things so the message that they want to bring across is what they will you know is what people are going to consume so I think with social media you get to hear different perspectives and I think that's the positive thing about it but I think when it comes to like you know your typical comparing yourself to other people and feeling like like you said the other day in your post you felt like you know you hadn't done enough this year and when I look at you I think you've done so much this year and you can tell when I look at you I can tell that you know you're constantly trying to learn and you're constantly trying to be better in whatever aspect but it can sort of feel like when you see other people and I'm guessing like lots of your friends have like, you know, published books. So you're like, oh, I haven't, you know, made a book. So that means I'm unaccomplished when that's really not the case at all. So I think I'm sort of like sitting on the fence. Yeah, that's very kind of you to say. And you're right. And we all do it where you always look up rather than look around. And so we're always comparing ourselves mm. to someone. There's always going to be someone better than us. But then there'll also be lots of people who are doing the same or not as much. And we never think to stop and you know take store of that either like we always look at the negative I think um 
But going back to what you were talking about in terms of how social media has really accelerated some of these social justice movements, which I completely agree with. And it's whenever I talk about social media and people kind of say, oh, it's got a net, you know, negative effect, especially on mental health and things. Mm. I also always go back to how it has really created momentum for these different movements. And this links on to your second thing that you said to me um, when we're talking about race and visibility, because you said that the second thing that you didn't get taught in school is about the limitations of whiteness and how your secondary school experience was shaped and very different to white friends because the Mm. staff at your school are like 99% white and 100% white passing. Um, And Mm. I wonder if you could expand on that. And I thought the limitations of whiteness was a lovely phrase. And I wonder if you could explain that a bit more. So I think if I just take something that's more recent and then we can sort of work backwards so you can sort of see how even though we feel like times have changed and things are changing, they might not necessarily, that might not necessarily be the case. So in my art um, coursework, I am looking at the human form and mainly the female form and naked women. So I was obviously talking to my teacher about that. He was like, yeah, I've got this great book. And, you know, I really he really wants me to perfect my um, proportion. So he got this book out and it was all these, you know, amazing artists, um, you know, very famous artists and their um, their paintings. And every single page in that book, it was quite a thick book, where they were just white white women. And I said that to him and he said, oh, yeah, that's true. And he was like, oh, I'll try and find, you know, a black artist or something or I'll try and find, you know. But it's just so interesting because if I hadn't have said that, bearing in mind I'm the only black person in my art class, if I hadn't have said that, that book, you know, no one would have seen. It's just, oh, it's a book with, you know, really good proportions and, you know, beautiful use of tone and colour and all of this sort of stuff but it's only helpful if you want to paint just white women because Mm -hmm. if I wanted to paint a black woman then I have to literally teach myself how I use tone correctly for different under like different shades of black and all of these things and I just found it interesting because I I should, as a student, be able to get have access to resources that help me and my work at all times. Mm-hmm. And I think when it's just, I, I just found that it, that it, this literally happened last week, and I just found that so interesting because I, I if before before last before even last month, I would have gone through that book and I would have said, "Yep, cool, this is helpful." In the last, I think, month or two months, I've become more self-aware and I just thought, this is just white women. This isn't helpful at all. So therefore, when I say limitations of whiteness, it's that because white people are in charge and they're the ones, you know, head of department or, you know, running the school, these small things aren't picked up on because whiteness is the norm. Yeah, yeah, that's honestly such a beautiful and shit example because you're so right it's that default white concept and I was trying to think back to when I was doing art my GCSEs and the same as you I don't think that anyone any of the artists that I looked at I don't think any of them had um, black figures or people of colour it was all white people and I literally can't think of anyone that didn't depict that Mm. so and and that is especially because I think you said to me before as well that like the majority of the people at your school or that it's it's not all white students right you have a quite a diverse cohort in your school do you? Uh, so with my actual school the student body it's quite diverse being a grammar school um, so even in terms of location people will come from or like all over Essex even into people from London coming to the school so it as a student body it's diverse and you'll see so many black students Asian students and other you know people of colour but then when you look at the staff it's just 
just white stuff. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When it comes to an education on race in general in your school, what is the conversation like about that? Because when I was at school, I we didn't learn anything really um I had no idea what institutionalized racism was or systemic racism those weren't phrases that I learned until I was in my 20s um and I was at university are are those conversations like happening in the classroom and if and if they are are they happening are they coming from those white teachers or is it more like students having these conversations um well surprisingly well unsurprisingly these conversations don't actually occur um it was only till so in the summer i i think it was like june time i um made this 28 page document and it was i sort of gathered people you know present pupils and past pupils um to write their experiences of racism and we compiled it and we made it into like a formal letter with you know all people's accounts on there as well um, and we sent it to the school and it's been since then that they've been trying to sort of diversify as much as the, of the curriculum which of, you know that they can but it's very interesting because my school in year seven we had a lesson in PS, PSHE that was called British Values and I honestly can't remember this lesson but I remember some of my friends talking about it and it's just interesting because British values we're not learning anything to do with race we're not learning anything to do with diversity it's all very like treat everyone with respect or you know that's sort of very niche um and cliche so the conversations don't really happen and I think something I do nowadays which is very I think it would I probably does annoy a lot of my teachers when I'm walking around in the corridors and I'm having a conversation with my friend and if it's to do with race or like feminism I will speak really loudly especially if it's to do with race so that they can hear and they can hear that I'm confident in speaking about like unapologetically about race because it's one of those things where white people don't a lot of white people don't like it when they see people of colour, especially black people, confidently talking about any issues full stop. Um, so when it comes to race, that's obviously something that a lot of white people feel uncomfortable about. So I sort of do it in a way to show that we're allowed to have these conversations in school. These aren't conversations that are sort of boxed off to one, you know, staff meeting after school or, you know, the summer of 2020 or wherever it is these are conversations that should be happening regularly and they're not so I sort of have my little input and speak really loudly when I do when I am having these conversations. I think it's incredible that you took your own initiative to get people to put together this this document and piece of work to kind of campaign for you know more conversations around this but how was that received what was the reception like when you kind of you did present this to your teachers or your head teacher whoever gave it to um so I actually sent it to all of the staff in the school which took a very long time because I had to go through like the email list like clicking each staff one by one just to make sure it wasn't I didn't want it to be boxed off to just you know the head teacher or the deputy head mm. I wanted every single member of staff to see it I wanted you know the dinner ladies to see it I wanted you know the support staff to see it. I wanted everyone to see it and everyone to be involved within the conversation but that was quite scary and because if you read the document and you read the accounts of racism within the school there was one um a couple of at the start of the year before lockdown and it was this group of um white students in the year below and they'd after school with you know a couple of people from other schools or like, I don't know the, the whole situation, but essentially this piece of paper was produced and it had lots of slurs on it, like 
the N-word everywhere, but it wasn't the N-word of, you know, an A, it was with an E-R. It had, like, blacks as subhumans on it. It was very derogatory. It was just disgusting. And the way that the school dealt with that was basically silence black students and, you know, just hush-hush, it's fine. But I don't think, in terms of overt racism, you could get any worse than that. And it was just shocking to see that how, you know, how the school had sort of, dealt with it as just an internal issue so when I was sending it I was petrified because I thought they could see this as oh my gosh this is Maxine again you know trying to be disruptive or trying to you know cause problems but I was I was surprised but um when I spoke to my dad about it he sort of felt as though it was you know they received it in a positive way they wanted to you know change aspects of the curriculum or make you know black students or students of color more involved in the school community and more you know appreciated because I that's was sort of the overall message that lots of students of color even those you know who had left school and they were in their 20s were writing you know accounts of their time at my school I think that really showed me that it was like such an important thing and the whole the overall message was like we don't feel valued, we don't feel seen, we don't feel respected. So I think that's what they're trying to implement now. But it's still it's slow. It's it's a, it's a process, obviously, but it's it's quite difficult because there's not that you know passion for it. That must take a tremendous amount of courage to take on that responsibility and as you say to like pitch to the school or pitch to teachers something which you already feel has been undervalued and not treated with the the respect and levity that it needed like as you say that's horrific overt racism that's really horrifying to think that that that, that that's happening and that it wasn't dealt with in the correct way but I imagine your dad and mm. your friends and the people that wrote in were really proud and grateful that you did that would how did that did it create a sense of community amongst your peers and the people that wrote in? Like, how did you feel after after you did it? I think it's incredible. Um, well, at the time, I sort of felt like it's something that was it needs, you know, it needed to be done. And I sort of feel really awkward when you know, teachers will say to me, like, you've literally changed the whole school. Like, you don't know the impact that you've had. That that makes me feel quite... It, it, it's weird because, like I said before, it's just me fighting for people who look like me just so they can have a better experience it's not sort of a thing of where I'm doing it because it will look good on my UCAS application or I'm doing it because you know it's going to make me feel better you know (laughs) morally I'm doing it because I had such a difficult experience in secondary school so I want you know all I was thinking about when I was doing it it was quite it was very tasky It, it was very exhausting but Mm. when I was sitting there you know trying to because I wanted it to come across in a way that it was a formal document you know it wasn't just one email saying that oh Black Lives Matter has happened so please can you care I wanted it to be this is very serious this is something that's happened in the school for a long time the school needs to take it seriously and not just be another issue that is brushed under the carpet um it's I don't know it's it's weird because at the time I felt like I yeah I just have to do this and now I sort of look back I think I still sort of feel that way but there is a part of me that thinks yeah I did that like yeah I did and did it do you think that there has been positive change from it like have the schools stuck to their word have you seen action being taken from your activism which that was true activism you know Mm, um yeah so my English teacher, she actually was saying that because of, I have a really close relationship to one of my English teachers and she's so lovely. And she was saying to me how um, I've changed the whole English department because over the summer they rewrote the whole curriculum for the like from year seven to nine. Um, so like prior to GCSE and they really wanted students of colour to to see themselves in their work and um at the start of the term I don't know when th- it happened but you know when diversity did their uh, um Britain's Got Talent 
like mm. performance and obviously got loads of that got loads of hate so my English teacher decided for a task in her um, one in one of her lessons I think with her year eight class um to sort of they were looking at articles and I think they came across one from the sun and she got her class you know write um a letter to the sun saying how they didn't like the article that they'd put out and how the article was focused around the hate of the performance rather than the performance itself and she showed me this one response um, from this year eight girl. So she's no older than 13. She's probably, you know, 12. And it was so beautifully written and so articulate. And I was reading it and I just thought, I could have never written like this when I was in year eight. And I said that to her and she said, you probably could have. It was just, you weren't taught anything that made you, that, you know, you were passionate about. And you weren't seen in your work. And it just, it really clicked in my head that now these pupils are going to you know, be better. All the, you know, the skills that school teaches you, like writing, maths, you know, sciences, all of these things, because they're seen in their lessons. And that, I think that for me, that made me feel a bit emotional because I thought, wow, like this girl has been able to unapol- unapologetically voice herself in her schoolwork and is now being commended for that. Whereas when I was that age, it wouldn't have occurred. Um, so yeah, that that made me feel like quite proud. That makes me feel really emotional listening to you talk about that because you're so right that, and it's funny because I had a really, really close relationship with one of my English teachers as well. And the reason that I was good at English was because, as you said, I felt really valued by my teacher and they used to give me lots Mm. of praise and they would be really interested in my work. And so I would work so much harder for this one teacher. I was actually really naughty in my other classes because I just felt like they weren't listening to me or they didn't think I was that good. And whether or not I was good Mm. or not didn't matter. I became better because... I felt like I was being valued. That's like a specific instance, but you're right because in a broader instance, like people of colour, people who are marginalised are more deeply undervalued in an unconscious way alongside, you know, general favouritism or whatever it might be. And listening to you speak about that and saying that you couldn't have done it, your teacher's completely right. Of course you could have done it. I couldn't do what you're doing right now when I was 18 either. Um, So I think that's a really... I think that's a really important thing. And I guess when I think about the things I wasn't taught about in school, I think one of the most important things is that actually what makes people so special and important and more than, you know, like being really good at sport or being like the one who gets the highest grades is learning how to like Mm. communicate with people in a way that makes them feel something, you know? And it's not until I got older really that I started to value such a non-entity in a way, but like value kindness and value... um, I don't know, just giving people their time. I don't know if that was a bit of a yeah. shitty answer for me. I feel like you're better at this than I am. <laughs> right. um, Definitely so, not. <laughs> I think, honestly, I think that what you did in your school was incredible. I think it's such a shame that the burden fell on you. And it's, one, a story of inspiration for other young people who maybe feel like their voice isn't getting heard. And you did a really clever course of action in the way that you put it together, like you said, like a proper document and you had evidence to back it up. But at the same time, it's it's such a shame that as such a young person, you do feel like you have to take on that task because, as you said, you feel like there's no other option. Mm, yeah, definitely. It, it yeah, it can be exhausting. So I'm going to move on to your last thing um, that you wish that you've been taught about in school. And it was that you felt like, I guess a bit what we were talking about, actually, that you didn't feel like you were supported. And so you had to learn how to be your own champion and how to support yourself. Um, So I wonder if you can expand on that a bit more, too. Yeah, so when I started secondary school, um, year seven for me, it was really hard. I only found out last week. Uh, that I actually have social anxiety so I knew for a long time that I have anxiety but I didn't realize that I because people see me as just like really confident person who's outspoken who's all of these other things but I actually have really bad social anxiety and I now I look back it was definitely very prevalent in year seven um and so when I got to secondary school my school was quite far from where I live you know for year seven traveling to school every morning and it's like a like 45 minute an hour journey that's quite 
exhausting. Um, so yeah, I found I found G7 hard. And then at the same time, my mum was very ill. She had cancer and she'd had it since I was six. So I was 11, 12 at the time. And that was very difficult to navigate. And I just felt like looking back, um, I find it quite hard to talk about my secondary school experience because I've completely forgotten a lot of it. And I think that's down to a lot of trauma that I faced. But my mum died in the summer of year seven. So just before year eight. So when I got into year eight, I was known as, you know, the girl whose mum died. And I was, as the years progressed, known as all the girl who wants to kill herself and the girl who, you know, all these negative things. And it really shaped my secondary school experience because I was sort of made fun of and looking back, I was bullied in school. But it's such a weird thing because when you're younger, you're taught that, you know, bullies are external. So they're sort of like, they're just one mean kid that comes along and it's really horrible to you rather than people who you consider your friends. And I'd be picked on a lot of the time. You know, people would dig at and make fun of the fact that I had mental health issues. Um, and it really made me, it made every day at school so difficult on top of all of the other challenges that I'd face, on top of grieving, on top of dealing with my mental health. Um, so I, I think from about the ages of like 12 to 15, 16, I really struggled in school. And it was when I was probably around 15, I got to the point where I was like, actually, I just need to support myself. I need to be there for myself because no one around me values me. And if I, and obviously that might not be the case, but that's how I felt at the time. No one around me values me. No one around me thinks I'm valid. No one around me sees me. And so in my head, when, you know, you have your own brain telling you all of these things and then people around you are telling you these things, it's very hard to be like, yeah, I want to live. Yeah, I want to, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm loved, I'm valued. All of these things that we're sort of expected to believe when you have very few people around you telling that and then your head is telling you that it's, it's quite hard to sort of live everyday life. And I just, I got to the point where I was like, I need to, I need to cut off, you know, some of these friends. I need to, I need to make time for myself. I need to invest in myself. I need to do things that I love. I need to express myself in the way that I want to. And through that, I think made me as sort of like form the person I am today. And I've still got a lot of that to unpack. And I think when I leave like my school next year, or in this, obviously I've got what, like eight, nine months left. But when I leave school, I think I'll be able to unpack that properly. I'm I'm so sorry for the loss of your mum and I can't even imagine how awful and devastating that still must be for you to go through and to keep going through. And it's so cruel that something so devastating can be, you know, fodder for bullying and cruelty, but that's weirdly often such a common thread with with children and, mm. and younger people is that we find things that we find uncomfortable and almost weaponize it against the other person because we don't know how to deal with that level of feeling it's such an awful mm. thing for anyone to go through and it's also difficult to hear you say about your mental health and how that was a point a reason for people to tease you as well because I optimistically through my rose tinted glasses would have hoped that maybe the conversation would have progressed somewhat when it comes to mental health. Um, but when you were growing up, I guess, maybe it still wasn't as advanced as I'm imagining it was when you were at school then. Yeah. It, I think it. it's weird now, and I think in the age of, like, TikTok, I personally don't have TikTok because I feel as though, obviously this is not the whole of TikTok, but I feel like with any of these, um, <laughs> with any social media, the algorithm will just know who you are and because I do speak, I did speak about like my mental health a lot on my Instagram and I still sometimes do. Um, 
that it would just be the same on TikTok and they'll just be flooded with all of these, you know, people talking about their experiences. I think that nowadays it's weird because when I was 13, 14, I was literally demonised for being ill and for being, you know, for having all of these issues. But now it's weird because people who are that age currently sort of, it's like cool, it's cool to have a mental illness or it's cool to have mental health problems which is a very weird thing for me. And I think it's, I find that very uncomfortable because a lot of my secondary school experience was shaped because of my mental health and like now my mental illness. So it's very weird that that's seen as a cool thing when that was not absolutely not seen as a cool thing when I was 13. When you say it's a cool thing, do you mean that cynically in that like people kind of maybe are romanticizing mental health or do you mean it's like Mm. it's super chill for you to talk about mental health and no one really cares it's like romanticizing it so there's sort of this level of competition that I see like this is the one of the main reasons I won't get TikTok but a lot of my friends will like post TikToks that they've like they've seen on their stories and stuff um or they'll talk about that you know that happens and things like that but I think especially in this country um there's this like competition of like who's the most ill um like amongst teenagers and like oh I've been admitted into a psych ward or I've been on medication or I have really intense whatever and I think it is very romanticized and there is a danger in that because people who might have like you know mild anxiety or you know are you know have mild depression can get dragged into this idea that they need to be validated the worse that they are which is obviously very bad because they could be helped a lot earlier but then they might end up developing you know, un- like really negative behaviours because they think that's how they they need to be seen. Wow, that's not something that I've um, been privy to or that I've seen. And I guess it's interesting to hear you, you talk about it from that perspective because I guess, especially in my generation and where the conversation from mental health, it's taken me so long even to recognise my own mental health um, that I would worry. And I'm not saying this is what you're doing, but I I worry about, you know, us diminishing the conversation around mental health by people saying people are romanticizing mm. it but it, it makes complete sense that teenagers would romanticize it because psychologically when you're a teenager the way your brain works is like everything is happening to you rather than externally um yeah and so like obviously if you've got social media playing into that and then you are struggling with your mental health it's very interesting to hear that that angle and that you do have like you're also very compassionate towards those people but that that's a whole mm. guess I guess that's a whole new ball game of like where social media can throw things into relief and kind of fuck things up a lot I think that's why social media is so fascinating because I guess when you were talking about your platforms you use Instagram and you listen to lots of podcasts but I guess the platform for you that sounds like you would say you know maybe this is doing more harm than good would be TikTok which is more your generation's platform anyway isn't it yeah Mhm. I think that this is this is the awkward thing and this the it's the difficult thing because on the one hand it's great that lots of people have been able to talk about mental health and are able to feel comfortable in voicing the things that they're going through and voicing that they're struggling and I think that's amazing and you know I didn't have that and I wasn't sort of welcomed in that regard like I find a lot of comfort in um like mental health meme pages it always just makes me makes me laugh and makes me feel better because it's like someone somewhere understands how I'm feeling or we can laugh about you know the NHS and, and you know the crisis team and all of these things that we all experience but on the other hand it it can feel like you need to I think it's it's weird because people sort of feel like they need to share their like medical information with everyone in order to be validated or like how many times they've ended up in hospital or how many times they've done x y and z which but it's all it's it's like it's interlinked because you can't have that community without mm. these things happening so it's like do we diminish so recently i think um instagram 
and like got rid of the BPD hashtag, which is outrageous because people with BPD find comfort in talking to other people with BPD. Like I find comfort talking to people who have, you know, the similar mental health issues or symptoms, whatever it is. So that is quite dangerous because it stops people from reaching out and it stops people from having a community. But I guess, I don't know, I'm just guessing their way of looking at it is, oh, if we stop this hashtag, then we stop all the negative things mm. that might come out of it. But it's like, which one do we do? Is BPDs for borderline personality disorder? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. And it's it's sometimes also getting rid of those conversations in the open can push it into darker spaces of the internet and make it kind of mm. even more taboo and harder to access. I, Out of my own curiosity, I'm wondering if, because we know that the way you spoke about algorithms earlier and we know the way that social media works is it really thrives off outrage and the more um, emotionally, not manipulative, the more like emotionally engaging a piece of content is, the more people are driven to it. And I wonder if there's some kind of uh, tandem at play where because so many people are using social media so much, they then they're, they're heightening their levels of kind of like not outrage it's not the right word but I can't think of the, the correct term for it D- like do you think that social media is distorting the way that we inter- interact with each other and at the same time do you think that people of your age have less in real life communication and friendship time and it's more heavily weighted to being online or would you say you couldn't comment and it's not like a universal thing I feel like to some extent it's not a universal thing like it really depends on the individual but I do think that a lot of I think obviously this year has been difficult because there's literally a pandemic so Mm. you're not seeing people everything has been sort of pushed online and things you know positive things have been pushed online negative things have been pushed online but I do I do think that it's just down to where you find yourself how you've grown up and all of these different factors that it's not sort of everybody is doing the same thing. I think, like you said before, I think that's the the danger that a lot of that thinking that a lot of millennials have, that, oh, it's fine, the younger generation, like, are really in tune, when I don't think that's necessarily the case. But I also think within that, it's very interesting because the way I see it is that it sort of pushes the responsibility onto the younger generation to fix to fix things and that mm. it's it, it it stops people from holding themselves accountable in yeah, a lot I of, think that in a lot of ways I, I think that's definitely true. I definitely think there's this idea of like, oh, the kids will fix it or like, and I feel like that's kind of been a trope forever, especially when it comes to like climate change and stuff. It's sort of like, well, we've set the world on fire, but don't worry because we know you're going to put it out. So <laughs> it's all fine. We'll just carry mm. on. Um, and I do yeah. think that creates a lot of pressure. And I think you're right, actually. I think that we're seeking even a lot of this conversation I've been having with you. It's almost like I, I'm almost searching you for answers when actually you shouldn't be giving me answers for anything. You know, this course that's been, a lot of it's already been pre-laid for you and you're just traversing it in the best way that you can. But for some reason, mm. it's kind of it's kind of fascinating because you've grown up with the things that have been laid down before you by previous generations, whereas we've only like experienced them for portions of our lives. So I guess you experience them very differently. Um, yeah, I don't know if that even made sense. No, I get um, what you mean. I've loved talking to you so much. You're such a fantastic interviewee. You're honestly so fabulous to talk to, um, and I really appreciate you coming Thank on our team. That if really people means a want... lot. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. Honestly, I'm so pleased. And I just know you're going to do incredible things. And I'm excited to see where you go. Um, if people want to find you and follow you more, you're obviously still at school. So you're, you're, no one has any expectations of you doing anything crazy right now because you're literally studying. But if people did want to follow you or find you, where would you like people to go? Um, so the main like social media that I use is Instagram. And my Instagram is um, looking for Mother Max. So at looking for Mother Max. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you want to find me or engage in my content, um, I've got IGTVs on there, which is sort of, I prefer talking 
because I feel like I can articulate myself better than this like on text so if you go onto my account and you swipe I've got some IGTVs on there which might be helpful or informative Amazing. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sure that everyone listening will agree that you're such an incredible orator. So I'm sure they'll go and seek out those Instagram TVs. Thank you Thank so you. much, everyone, for listening. And I will see you next week.